90% of people with vision impairment live in the developing world, where their loss of vision severely impacts their ability to earn a living and support their family. But this social enterprise is making it easier for those in the bottom of the pyramid to access affordable eyewear. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Baerbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Sea Change Magazine. On today's episode, we speak with the founder of Vision Spring, Jordan Casalow, about why he launched the enterprise, its various distribution models, why they chose to sell instead of donate eyeglasses, and their measurable impact on the ground. What inspired you to to um, to found Vision Spring? What what was the the gap, the needs that you saw weren't being met? Well, the founding story was a transformational moment that I had when I was a young student studying to be an eye doctor. Mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to join an organization that brought vision services to underserved populations in Latin America, and we were in Mexico, and there in front of me was a seven-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, It was literally my first patient I'd ever seen uh, clinically, and um, he was from the school for the blind and when we looked at his eyes we realized he wasn't really blind he just needed a super powerful pair of eyeglasses right prescription was a minus 20 Um, and when I was uh, able to put the first pair of glasses in front of him and he saw for the first time it really was a moment that changed both of our lives Uh, I gave him his vision and he gave me mine and since that point I've been somewhat obsessed with ensuring that people who need proper vision and eyeglasses so they could live up to their full potential had them. Mm-hmm. That was really the genesis of, of my work at Vision Spring. Although it took me many years to come to that, that was sort of the initial moment where I realized there was a, a real injustice in the world and that yeah. millions of people, hundreds of millions of people didn't have access to something so simple as a pair of eyeglasses. What I was I'm always curious about, and, and this is something you, you address on your, your website, um, um, and I think you even mentioned it in a, a couple of articles that I read, um, you know, some people would just assume that the best way to help people with their eyesight, you, you know, the same way they can help them with, with lack of shoes and other things, um, is to just donate um, used eyeglasses to them or, you know, there's a two for one model that is very popular in, in with different products out there. Um, I'm wondering why is it that you haven't approached vision spring with that model and why you decided to take a different tack and a different approach? Yeah, it's an important question and a good question. When I was working for that organization, that student organization, that was the approach we were taking. Mm-hmm. We would raise uh, donated glasses. We would categorize them by strength. We would make sure that the ones that were in poor condition were thrown out. And we would put together a library of about 5,000 pair of glasses categorized by male, female, unisex, categorized by power, um, and so forth, categorized by single vision, meaning they weren't bifocals versus bifocals. And we had a very robust system of how to do that. Mm -hmm. 
And one day I was in Colombia, in Choco, Colombia, which is in the western part of Colombia, and we were working on a for a one week visit, setting up a temporary clinic like we had done so in Mexico the year before. Right. And I met a 40 plus year old Choco Indian woman whose name was Noka, and she was also known as the blind lady uh, in her village. She had kayaked a full day downriver to, or canoed, I should say, um, a full day downriver because she heard a team of American eye doctors were going to be setting up this clinic in the town of uh, Kibdo, which is the big town there. Mm-hmm. And um, we examined her. She couldn't see the big E on the eye chart. Put on a pair of glasses. She could see right down to 2020 for the first time in her life. She was thrilled. We were thrilled. And we went about our day. And two days later, Noka came back and she had gone back to her village, then come all the way back down river to let us know that when she went home and she was wearing the glasses, people were laughing at her because they looked ridiculous. And truth be told, she was right, because here was a woman who was dressed in traditional Choco Indian um, garb, and the only pair of glasses that we had that matched her very complicated prescription were a 1950s pair of cat-eye glasses (laughs) with rhinestones in them. And maybe they would look cool in the East Village of New York, but they really didn't work in the village where she was from. And so she asked if there was anything that looked more appropriate, culturally appropriate. And we told her because her prescription was very unusual, there wasn't anything, it was this or nothing. And then she did something that really shook me to my bones. She put the glasses on a wooden table and went back into her canoe and canoed up river, preferring to be blind than to be ostracized by her community. Mm. And it was a real lesson that, wow, somebody just chose blindness over what we were providing and that really made me look, look internally, what were, we, what were we doing wrong um, for her to make that decision? And it really all related around the fact that we weren't treating her as a customer. We weren't treating her as a consumer. We weren't treating her as a person. We weren't treating her dignity, the fact that vanity is not monopolized by rich people. No matter where you live or how rich or poor you are, you care about what you look like. And there are cultural norms that are important. Mm-hmm. And that made me think, well, maybe if we actually charged some money for those services, we would be held responsible to ensure that people would pay for them and we would be um, held responsible for making sure that if they didn't see value in what we were providing, we wouldn't do well and people wouldn't buy them. And so it really put the onus on us to create products that were both in a, from a style perspective and a pricing perspective appropriate for the local context. And it made us better at what we were doing. Now, you have to, you have to be, keep in mind that people in those parts of the world can only charge a certain amount or be paid or pay a certain amount. So we couldn't go crazy. But if we could price them according to what the average person could pay and we could style them according to cultural aspirations – uh, then we would have the ability to sell something. Mm-hmm. And and so that was the original uh, impetus to do that. Now, further studies have showed that our instincts were correct, that the model uh, that we use where you donate glasses ends up costing around $20 per person served if you look at all of the costs associated with it. 
whereas in the Vision Spring model, where we ask people to pay something for their glasses, last year the philanthropic investment per person served cost only four dollars. Hmm. So it was five times more cost effective than the uh, donated model. So those were a couple of the reasons that um, uh, we prefer having that entrepreneurial model associated with our services. Interesting. And so, and what about your distribution model? How is that unique and, and the way that you get these glasses out into communities um, and how you work with those communities? And, and as a second part of that question, um, it seems to me that that model has evolved a little bit since you started Vision Spring. And I think that was in 2001. Is that correct? And it's been a while since it's been going. Am I right in that year? Uh, okay. So we've been at this for about 15 years now, mm-hmm. and our very first model was just the kind of, if you will, the Avon model, where we would find local women in particular, train them how to sell simple eyeglasses, mm-hmm. and ask them to sell them to their neighbors who needed to see, to read, to work, and so forth. And that way we could both create livelihoods for these women mm-hmm. and help sustain livelihoods of the consumers and the customers of those glasses so they could continue to see to work. Right. And that was our model for the first three or four years. And many aspects of that model were successful, but many aspects were um, challenged in terms of really scaling it. It was a slow boat to scale because if you had to train one person at a time and you had a dedicated sales force, it was expensive. So it was Something that worked, people would buy glasses from their neighbors if they were trained appropriately and they were um, appropriately dressed and they had good products. But the scaling was something that was going to be quite slow. And that was another issue with the donated models versus the revenue models that because the problem is so big and we're talking about about two and a half billion people in the world need this product Mm -hmm. but there just wasn't enough donated capital so we needed the markets to really work so we showed that it it could work but it was a slow boat to scaling and so that's when we came up with our newer iteration of the model of finding other organizations that had their own existing distribution that were already selling other like products and services and teaching them how to add eyeglasses into their basket of goods. Mm. And we did that first with BRAC. Uh, We were very fortunate to have an opportunity to work with BRAC, which is the world's largest NGO. They have a huge community health worker program where they've trained over 100,000 community health workers who are in almost every village in Bangladesh selling nutritional products and aspirins and other important uh, health products. And we added eyeglasses to their basket. And we started with 50 of those women, and it worked quite well. So they scaled up to 500 and then went to 5,000. And now we've trained over 25,000 of their community health workers over the last decade, and we just celebrated our millionth customer served Hmm. through that particular model just in Bangladesh. That's great. So we've replicated that. Obviously, BRAC is the only one of that size, but we have other organizations that have community health workers and other workforces. Uh, We're starting to do that now with SEWA, which is another very large organization Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. India. And so that model continues to this day, uh, but not with dedicated Vision Spring Vision Entrepreneurs, like we used to call them, but with Vision Entrepreneurs from other organizations that are already out there selling 
a kind of a suite of like products. So that's one of our other distribution models. And we have several others. We have models where we act as wholesalers into uh, eye hospitals and other clinics. Uh, we have vision access programs in Latin America, uh, rather in, in India, where we work with uh, corporations on their CSR programs, where we go in and VisionSpring provides uh, vision screenings, and we set up our own eye camps uh, to service those people. We work with uh, going to manufacturers, and we work with business owners, factory owners, and we do mass screenings for factories so that people can see to do their work more productively. So we have a whole bunch of different models now. Uh, compared to in the first year when we just had our first vision entrepreneur model. So I guess that the, the models, um, they change or they, they do you try to ensure that they work for the region that you're in? Is it, is it because each region has a unique, unique needs or there's just different partners that show up that make it easier to, let's say, go into uh, a company, for example, as you mentioned, versus working with BRAC or another NGO in a different region? Is it what determines the distribution channel or distribution model? Is it the partners that come on board or is it the region or a bit of both? I would say it's a bit of both. Um, we partner closely with an organization or a company called Essilor, mm -hmm. which is the world's largest company that works in the vision space. Um, and they have a base of the pyramid um, initiative um, called their 2.5 initiative, which relates to the two and a half billion who needs it. Mm -hmm. And they, we were meeting with them not too long ago, and they talked about having 36 different models uh, based on what you just mentioned, the local context, uh, the partnerships that are available. And each market has its own unique characteristics that can determine which models might work or might not work. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the work that we do is generalizable. Um, so, for instance, with BRAC, BRAC is an organization that not only works in Bangladesh, but also works in Uganda and West Africa and other Middle Eastern country, countries and Asian countries. And so we're starting to scale our model that we've started in Bangladesh with BRAC into Uganda this year. Uh, and there are other models that and some of our wholesale models can be more generalizable uh, as we go into new markets to serve eye hospitals and existing eye care players. Uh, but Although there's some aspects of what we do that's generalizable, there's also a lot of customization based on the local context and the existing partners. Yeah, that's, that's what makes it interesting because I, I noticed that um, a lot of times people talk about scale, and you definitely have scaled over the years quite a bit, but um, you know, scale usually is, is defined as something that makes the model replicable, and I don't think that it's always as simple as replicating one model in another region, another region. It always has to be, not always, but I, I'm saying that it, it does seem that often in cases specifically um, in the type of regions that you uh, you go into, that that um, replication necessitates some customization, as you said. So um, right. I find that very interesting, but it, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing that I, I was wondering you you said when you originally launched you uh, you had what was called Vision Spring Entrepreneurs or Vision I forget the the exact term you used was it Vision, vision Entrepreneurs Vision Entrepreneurs Entrepreneurs right so 
And what I liked about that um, was that you provided um, folks on the ground, community people living in the community, with a way to engage and to um, to make some some money. Also, and do you still have opportunities like that for people on the ground? Yes. So to this day, the for instance, the BRAC Vision Entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. who are part of the BRAC network, and they're called. Their proper title is Shatsushebikas, uh, and we at Vision Spring, though, call them vision entrepreneurs for our purposes right. uh, because they serve that function. They do make money for each pair of glasses they sell. Mm-hmm. In fact, the glasses that they sell are the highest margin product in their basket of goods, so they like selling those glasses when they can. Sure. Uh, it's true with other partners as well. So. We still have the opportunity for our vision entrepreneurs to make money uh, by selling this useful and helpful product to their neighbors. The difference, though, is that we don't just have they don't they don't just sell glasses. They sell a suite of products. uh, And most people uh, have found that when you're selling to the base of the pyramid, it's important to have a suite of products in order to make enough money to keep it sustained. Mm, okay. And your your demographic is strictly the base of pyramid. Is that is that it? Yes, we really focus on people who earn between one and four dollars a day. Okay. As an organization, we want to make sure that at least eighty percent of our customers fall inside that band of of, of, of uh, money. Okay. And um, in terms of just back to that point about impact, well, we, we were sort of touching upon it indirectly, but I'm you, you've had you've you've found ways to measure impact and to to really get a sense of um, the, the the outcomes of the work that you're doing on the ground. Um, could you just give me a sense of um, how important that measuring of impact is, and 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 uh, some of the ways that you've gone about? Um, like I, I read something in 2007. There was a uh, William David Institute of University of Michigan he worked with to do some studying, uh, to do a study. It was, I don't know if that was with you in partnership with you or not. So I, I'm just wondering how you go about measuring impact. Yes. So the first part of the question is, is impact important? Uh, I would say absolutely. It really is the language in which we can communicate with the funder, the donor community, mm-hmm. uh, particularly around the social enterprise funding sources that we've heavily rely on uh, impact is the uh, currency uh, of that community and there are a lot of wonderful organizations doing important work out there that have found ways to measure their impact and if you can't do so you're at a significant disadvantage right. Right. luckily vision spring has been able to measure our impact and in fact we often come right up at the top of the group in terms of impact per dollar uh, because what we do is so immediate and uh, profound Mm -hmm. in terms of providing people with vision, uh, which is so related to productivity. So we, in terms of how we measure it, we uh, we did commission the William Davidson Institute to do a study on the impact that vision has on productivity in working age uh, 40 plus year old population right people earn their living with their eyes and hands and we found that for people who needed glasses uh, who 
didn't have them but then received them, just immediately the difference of putting a pair of glasses on versus not having glasses increased their productivity by 34%. And that was a major boost. And we're actually now doing a couple of follow-on studies, uh, one in Bangladesh and one in India, to that research. And we're doing some randomized control trials to, to confirm that and modify it in any way um, that might need modifying. But that's been the impact measure that we used. And then we came up with a calculation that said, well, if someone's productivity is increasing 34% and our average customer earns $2 a day and they work 250 days a year on the glasses cost $2 to $4, then there is a uh, return on investment of $216 per pair of glasses sold uh, because we give the pair, we give the glasses a two-year life. So anyway, there's a calculation that says buy a pair of two to four dollar glasses and you will earn two hundred and sixteen dollars extra a year, and that is a you know incredible return on investment uh, and our impact is very great. So the more glasses we get on people's faces, the bigger our impact. And so you'll go to our website and you'll see numbers along the lines of um, over three uh, three point seven million people at this point have received glasses. And you multiply that by 216, and you get our total impact of close to a billion dollars at this point. Pretty impressive. Um, wondering where do you where do you see yourself next? Um, five years, ten years. Well, the first thing to note is that this is uh, clearly a team sport. Um, I play a an important but very small role in the overall success of Vision Spring. Um, we have incredible team members in all throughout the world, uh, mostly in India, Bangladesh, and New York. Uh, we have incredible funders. We've got great partners. So this is really a team sport, and it's been a success because of that collective group of people coming together to make it so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of where we're going, uh, we are going to continue to try to scale in markets where we are. And historically, our biggest markers have, markets have been in India and Bangladesh, and we continue to work very hard to scale both of those markets, uh, broaden into, uh, and we've already broadened into full service for prescription glasses, as well as children's glasses. Last year, we aimed to help uh, 10,000 children. For the first year, we started getting into children's services, and we actually reached over 30,000. This year, we're going to get closer to 75,000, 80,000 children. So we're getting a big push into children's vision. Um, we're also doing a big push into Africa, a region that is desperately in need of vision services. And we've started programs in Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, and Zambia. Uh, so we're expanding our geography as well. Thank you, Lisa. Good luck with everything. Thank and you. And thanks for taking interest again in vision. Spring. Absolutely. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye now. Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa.